like you, I've always been curious about successful people. In season two, we'll delve further to explore passion, purpose, and peace with today's heroes. Join me as we chat with inspiring and accomplished women and men who will share their journeys and life hacks to pass the power on to you. Hey guys, as always, thank you for listening and for your awesome feedback so far on season two. Let me share a message from a listener that gave me great motivation to work even harder to pass the power. Claris wrote, this morning on the way to work, I was tuning into your podcast featuring Rachel Lem and Piyush Gupta. I knew I had to drop you a big thank you. The past two weeks have been overwhelming and I tried different ways to recalibrate my energy, but nothing like tuning in to these two uplifting episodes. They truly inspired me. Thank you for creating such motivational and positive content. Thank you, Claris, for writing, listening, and using the podcast to power your life. And today I'm back with another exceptional episode of Pass the Power with me, Paige Parker. We have none other than filmmaker Bujan Fong. Sandcastle, his debut feature, was invited to the prestigious Cannes Film Festival. His second feature, Apprentice, premiered in 2016, also at Cannes, then traveled to over 80 film festivals around the world. In 2017, Apprentice became Singapore's official entry to the Academy Awards Best Foreign Language Film category. Exploring another creative outlet, in 2018, Jun Feng served as the creative director of Singapore's National Day Parade. He was the youngest person and the first full-time filmmaker to take on the role. This year, for NDP 2021, he did it again during a pandemic. Nonetheless, he had 1,200 performers split across five sites. The show included augmented reality, an inspiring, fully animated film, which left me in joyful tears. <laughs> Jun Fong, welcome. I'm so happy to finally have you here. We've been talking about this for a year. Yeah, finally I'm here. <laughs> Let's start with NDP 2021. Mm -hmm. The parade had to be postponed because of an outbreak of COVID. Did you have a nervous breakdown when you found out about the postponement? Well, when I first agreed to take on the job last year, 2020, we knew that, you know, it wasn't going to be a smooth ride. Obviously, we wished that it would be sort of a journey that will allow us to keep opening up and, and therefore arrive at the float finally on the 9th of August. But then things went through all kinds of ups and downs and twists and turns. And then we had designed it. It was like a ship that we had designed from the start that can withstand the storm. Obviously, we had hoped that it, it didn't have to go through the storm, but it did. And then we survived. And I think we more than survived. I think we did quite well. Yeah, I think that the hardest part probably was when, when it was postponed. Obviously, when the decision came to, to postpone it, we all knew that it was the right decision. But it was no less painful because we had worked for a year gearing up towards the 9th of August. And then some of us were hoping that it would end <laughs> already. <laughs> but then it went on for another three weeks. Right. Know? Well, can you tell us, I mean, how much time goes into the planning, the costumes, the choreography, the talent, the whole team? Well, typically for NDP, it starts even before the previous year's National Day. So we started the process. Well, I started designing it actually from around July last year. And then the team, the rest of the team started to join from around September to October. How big is the team? It depends on where you stop counting. Well, just the creative team alone is around, I would say, 20 to 25 people. And then we have, because it's organized by the Singapore Armed Forces, so that the military side has a sort of counterparts for us whom we work with. 
And then of course, then there's all kinds of support staff and then the volunteers and whatnot. So it comes up to be about a few hundred to a thousand of support personnel as well. And that's not including the performers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The performers are, yeah, that's a separate hit. That's in the thousands, yeah? <laughs> yeah, that too. Well, this year, obviously, we had to reduce the numbers and we knew it was going to be reduced from the start. And I think it was during the first phase two heightened alert when we were told that okay, maximum number of people at any single space at that point was 250. But people had already started rehearsing and started sort of doing their practices and we didn't want to disappoint them. A lot of them are volunteers. So we decided then to do the... The different uh, sites. The the different sites so that we separated everyone by space and by time as well because they were pre-recorded. But that just meant like, a lot more Even work. Even more work. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You're not scared of hard work, Chun Fong. I know that. Yeah, well, I mean, I had my, I had a great team. You know, the team was really, really on it with me. And we knew that we just really needed to grab the bull by its horns and just just wrestle it to the ground, really, to tackle this this beast. Yeah. Tell me this, because I was there in 2018 and saw NDP that you did, and it mm-hmm. was extraordinary. And then this year, seeing it on my computer... Mm-hmm. And I felt that this one was designed more for the television mm-hmm. than for actual people in the seats. Mm-hmm. Are we headed that way for the future? And can you envision virtual reality where we can kind of ride tandem down with the Red Lion? Well, this year was exceptional indeed. And when we were designing it, I made it a point actually to, because we knew that the audience size could be anything from 50 persons to, if we were that optimistic, the full audience of 27,000 and anywhere in between, right? And we knew that with the reduced numbers, we still had about 3 million people out there watching it from, from their homes. And we wanted then to cater for the wider audience. Typically, you know, 27,000 people is a very big show, a very big audience. And of course, you will need to make sure that everyone is engaged there, right there at the float. But this time around, we could kind of take a little bit more liberty in kind of just, you know, allowing the the very privileged thousand people there to just enjoy whatever was presented to them, but then keep a lot of the focus on engaging the millions out there instead. Well, as a filmmaker, that had to be right up your alley. That led to that wonderful animated film. Yes, and also the augmented reality. Yeah, I think on your point about VR, I think maybe, I mean, never say never. I think, but for me, when when I design a show, I want to keep it to what's human. And even with the AR that was used, I needed to make sure that it's too easy to let AR just take over and then turn it into just some visual effects extravaganza. But the person being at the center of it, we want to cast a spotlight on that. And that tends to be the hardest. And so through the stories, through the faces that we were showing, the dancers, the the bodies that were there, we wanted to then center it on the human being. I felt like your animated film, it told the story of real people, which you've done before. Um, They faced uncertainty, sadness, but of course, like every good Singaporean with resilience, they helped to build the nation. And there was a part where the lady's sewing machine was recovered Mm -hmm. by the fire. And as I mentioned before, I really did have tears, Mm -hmm. joyful tears. Listeners, you can watch this on YouTube if you missed it. And do you come up with the overall story arc or is it kind of given to you from on high? I came up with it with the team. Well, when we were first deciding how to design the show and, and what stories to tell, and keeping in mind we were we needed to do this a year ago, 
So we had no idea how COVID was going to go, how the national sentiment was going to be. We knew there would be ups and downs, but then wherever you hit or wherever it needs to be announced or wherever it hits 9th August is what you had to deal with, right? So we had to kind of scope it wide enough and kind of, and you know, as a filmmaker, thinking about the stories that it could narrow down to, I wanted to keep it on the human spirit, the spirit of resilience. And just thinking very broadly in, in sort of three blocks. One block would be that aspiration, the human dream of wanting to be something, wanting to do something. And then the second one would be the story of someone who wants to survive, you know, in times of crisis. How does he or she overcome? And then thirdly, someone who wishes to step up, right? To be the change he or she wanted to see in society, to create that change. So then the three stories, then we started digging for Singaporeans who have lived and experienced these various episodes in their lives in the past and started piecing it together. And then the present stories are fictional, but they embody the spirit of the people around us whom we have observed. And then we pair them up to see how you know one could inspire the other and then by extension inspire the rest of Singapore. So that was how it was designed from August last year. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting because August last year, we all thought it was going to be over by August this exactly. year. And so yeah. then as the year progressed, you had to keep evolving and revising, I guess. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing was last year, August, when we were talking about this, we thought, okay, by August this year, there'll probably be some fatigue surrounding COVID narratives. Uh, <laughs> I mean, by then, obviously, there were so many types of COVID narratives that have emerged. But I think what we had designed still, because it, it was anchored on something broader and more universal, it still hit the mark regardless. Yeah. Let's look back a little bit and think about the passions that have led to your purpose now in life. What were your favorite films as a youngster? Were you always into film? Yes, I was very drawn to it when I was in secondary school. When I was 15, you know, at that time, it was a lot of the Hollywood films, but mostly the Oscar films, you know, the films, the dramas, the big dramas. And I was very drawn to the this world of make-believe and how one could tell a story within a frame and everything beyond the frame is all just, it's still all made up, right? So I wanted to be a part of that world. And so I wanted to go to film school to be able to do that. And back then, I had no idea there was a film school in Singapore. I thought I could go to art school first and then decide later. And how were your parents with all this? Were they tiger parents? <laughs> were they encouraging? Did they think you were mad? Well, I think you can imagine when, you know, a 15-year-old comes to you and says, <laughs> I want to be a filmmaker. And uh, my parents, you know, kind of being... Typical Singaporean parents at the time couldn't grasp. They probably thought you what? should become an accountant what? first and then a filmmaker, yeah? <laughs> well, not to the far end of being an accountant, but at least, you know, you know, if they, they would be happy degree. if we were sort of, I was sort of an architect or a designer of sorts, where there was some, at least some kind of a proven or like a well-trodden kind of a path. Saying I wanted to be a filmmaker, there was hardly any role models at that time. When I was in Sec 3, I was doing really badly in school anyway. I always got this yellow slip, basically, that you know my form teacher needed to see my parents because I just wasn't a very motivated kid. I was in a decent school at Chongqing High School, but then I wasn't that good in my academics. I almost had to retain when I was in Sec 3. And then I was told to you know buckle up and do better. And then when I was in SEC 4, I remember my prelims, I did really badly. I did like 22 points. 
I remember being really demoralized when I was sitting in this hall. All my classmates could like, were like so excited. Oh, you know where their first three months in JC could be and <laughs> look at my score. And I couldn't qualify for anything, right? I, I felt like I was really just an outsider looking in. That was when I sat down with my parents and I said, you know, please, I don't want to go to JC, you know. I can't imagine myself going through another two years of just general studying. Like I, I, I just didn't really see a purpose in it. And when they said, and then I said, you know, I wanted to go to art school. I wanted to go to film school eventually. They said, I mean, since I couldn't go anywhere anyway, they said yes. And later on, when I found out that that was a film school in Singapore at Nian Poly, it was the only film school at the time. This is where I wanted to go. And then they said, of course, yeah, sure. Do you think that maybe you didn't do well so that this is where you would end up? Maybe. There was a sense of just, I just wasn't motivated. You know, I just didn't see a point in what I was studying. And then when they said I, they agreed, I suddenly felt so motivated. I was like, okay, this is the, like the last time I ever need to <laughs> do an exam, hopefully. In the end, I scored 10 points from 22. And then when I got to, and for Polly, I, I, I scored 7. So th that suddenly gave me this huge push to do well. And then when I went to film school at Nian Poly, it was the first time ever I actually topped my class. And that showed my parents that they were then convinced that, oh, okay, maybe, I guess this is what he wants to do. Yeah. So for those young people listening who maybe have just started a family and they have children, the, the counsel would be to let the children follow their passions and perhaps they will be motivated. I think so often parents are pushing our passions on our children. Exactly. And they don't yeah. thrive. But I would acknowledge that, I mean, I think all things considered, I was lucky in that I actually had, I was very singular, very single-minded on what I wanted to do. Even though it wasn't, you know, a path well-trodden, but I was at least focused on one point. I know there are a lot of young people who may not be as focused yet and it may take longer for them to find what they wish to do or, or what inspires them. And they should be given that time and space to do that. Well, I feel like these days it's more acceptable to be an artist. Mm -hmm. And are you optimistic on the Singapore art scene? Well, that's a very broad question. We've come uh, a long way, but we have a yeah. long way to go. I think there's certainly a lot more pathways to be able to express your creativity, be it in media and film and design or in the arts in general. But yeah, it still is never easy, right? It's it's certainly not... I mean, it's not even in West End. It's not, I mean, it's not easy in New York. Exactly. It is a pyramid. It's a very steep pyramid, right? And it's never easy to be able to be on top and command, you know, a certain power you know, to do what you want to do and have people support you for what you want to do. But I think as we develop the different industries, at least where film is concerned, we're starting to see in the independent film scene, people who don't just want to be directors, people who want to be production designers, sound designers, cinematographers. And that actually broadens the spaces that people can express themselves and pursue their dreams. That's true, because not everybody can be in the director's chair. Exactly. Yeah. Well, when, when I started, I, I, I wanted to be a, an art director. I didn't really want to be a director because I thought it would be really stressful. I wanted to be a part of, you know, make-believe. I wanted to build sets. I wanted to look at costumes and all of that. But when I went to Barcelona for an exchange program at Nian, um, that's when I got to write and direct my first short film. It's called A Family Portrait. And then when I came back, I entered it for the Singapore International Film Festival. And that's where I got discovered and got two prizes there. 
And suddenly, then I became a director. Right? I was, I was recognized for that. But um, when I first started, that really wasn't very specifically. I know I was very focused, but I wasn't that focused on wanting to be a director. I just wanted to be a part of this world. I've read that you really appreciate period films. Mm-hmm. And is it something that you've thought about for your future, making one? And if so, what period? Well, back then, actually, uh-huh. when I was a kid, the, the world of make-believe, right? right. The, the being drawn into... And I think in the late 90s, you know, Hollywood was very big on these historical dramas like English Patient, Titanic, right? Which had huge set pieces, very beautifully designed. But you don't dream of that? I like to think that I have kind of grown from oh, it. Outgrown that. <laughs> I mean, oh. it's not really that the fascination for that is still there, but I think cinema is so much more than that. And I have learned to kind of dig deeper and find all the other beautiful things about cinema. And for sure, you know, I would love to be able to do a period film, but you know, first of all, it costs a lot. And I wouldn't do it for the sake of it. I think if the right subject comes along, then for sure. Yeah, I know you. You would not do anything for the sake of it. It has to be something that you're truly behind. But if you had the money and it was the right piece, what period? I don't know. I mean, well, anything from, I think the first half of the 20th century is always one that is quite interesting for me because I was born in the second half. Just how the world had changed in just one century and, and just exploring all the details and maybe not just in terms of design, but also the way of life and appreciating it. Those are things that I'd be willing to explore. Well, one of the things that has happened in our lifetimes is reality television. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, can you imagine a reality show that might have value, that might do good? Do good. Or not just be an mm-hmm. expose of <laughs> the rich and famous. Well, I think the thing about TV is that it tends to need to be interesting, exciting. Right. Uh, <laughs> Nobody wants to see someone's mundane life. Yeah, well, there have been good programs. It kind of shows that something quite mundane, but there still needs to be something juicy and exciting in it to make good TV. But I'm not a TV maker, so it's hard for me to say. Before we proceed, let's take a quick break. Is there anything young people can do kind of to prep to be in the film industry or to jumpstart a career? I think in film now, there are a lot of avenues. And I suppose where the moving image is concerned, since I've graduated from school in the last two decades, there are so many other kinds of moving image that one can pursue. So I think you probably want to think a bit harder about what exactly about it is it that you are into For me, it's still cinema. Even though I do commercials, I do, you know, online campaigns and whatnot. It's where I dedicate my art towards is definitely cinema. Yeah, that's your craft. Yeah. So so that's still where I I see myself uh, growing and developing. But right now, yeah, you know, there's so much web content. there's, There's so many other avenues to explore. 
So you'd want to think quite hard about that. Well, Sandcastle, your debut film, was the first Singaporean film to be invited to Cannes Film Festival's International Critics Week. And your second film, Apprentice, was also invited to Cannes. And I wonder, how did that shape and change your psyche and your future ambitions? I mean, that had to just be otherworldly for you, that you were like, oh my gosh, I'm a Cannes. Well, I mean, it's quite out of this world to have a film actually showing Cannes, actually especially my first one. It was at International Critics Week, which is basically the section for first films. And critics and other festival programmers and distributors, they go to the Critics Week to explore and look for, you know, new talent. I mean, I was just blown away just being there and being so incredibly nervous because it was my first film. I made it when I was 25. I wrote it when I was 25. I think it was completed when I was 27, 28. And... To know that, you know, Screen Daily, Variety, Hollywood Reporter, they would they were going to review the film. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine the kind of pressure, in fact, that I, I'd be having at that time? But I think as it went along with Apprentice, it was shown then at the in the official selection in Unsettled Regard at Cannes, which obviously had a lot more pomp and pageantry, you know, you'd be wearing a tuxedo and, you know, you, you came in a beautiful dress, page. It gave you, you know, a, a sense of what this world is. And much as it was fun and exciting to be there and to be recognized on such a platform, for me, what was still the most important was that moment when the, when the hall goes dark and the, the first light from the projector comes on and film is presented, right? Because then all the years of hard work of putting together a film from writing it to making it to then editing it, suddenly in this 90 minutes to two hours, you take the audience on a journey. And that to me was the most magical part of it. And I was able to experience that Everywhere that I went, right, I brought the film to Dharamshala, to the Tibetans in exile in, in India, uh, in the mountains, and had it seen there. I had the film shown, you know, out on, in Palm Springs in, in the desert. And that same moment, right, when the, the cinema goes dark and everyone is invited on this journey. To me, that's where the magic is. And I would do anything yeah, to keep doing that. You definitely have a gift. And for full disclosure, I was executive producer on Apprentice. And what I love most about your work is how you humanize difficult topics. In Apprentice, you made us understand the weight hanging over the prison executioner, Rahim, and his apprentice, Ayman, who, spoiler alert, keeps from Rahim the fact that he was the executioner of Ayim's father. And I was so conflicted. I did not want to feel for the executioner, but you developed his character in such a way. And then that of the apprentice, whose hatred and internal rage was palpable, that we all could understand their struggles. And it seems to me, empathy for those who are not like us is a big part of the stories you like to tell and shape. True or false? True. At least, I think maybe for my first three films, <laughs> that is the direction that I seem to be interested in. And it's kind of, I can't say it was designed that way. It was just maybe generally my interest in, in trying to understand people and the human psyche uh, or the human condition in general. And sometimes, I think especially in the world we live in now, where everyone is sort of siloed into their own Social media bubbles. Algorithms. Uh, yes. It's very hard for us to step out of it, to listen, to understand, even if you don't agree, to see where 
the other is coming from. And I think, I mean, that has a lot to do with me, you know, for most of my life also growing up, kind of feeling like an outsider for being gay, being uh, someone in a society that, that, you know, isn't yet as accepting. And so, but yet, you know, being Chinese and being male and enjoying a lot of the privileges that a male Chinese person would enjoy in, in a society like Singapore. Uh, but yet at the same time, feeling like an outsider quite often. That has shaped my views and the way I see things. And I find actually a lot of, um, I mean, when, when you say okay, I have a gift, right? I still don't really know what that means. Because I remember being in Cannes and after the movie finished Apprentice, I mean, there was like a rapture. And there were tears mm-hmm. and people had been moved and people felt in a way that they never imagined they could. Mm-hmm. And you did that. Yes. Oh, that was a beautiful moment uh, <laughs> when, when that happened. Yes. But I think the point I was making is that I think when I first started and you know, when I first made my first short film, A Family Portrait, and then my many other films after that, it was a film that I made with a story that I had made in Europe, in Barcelona, that I, in a way, wanted my parents to see. Mm. I wanted my parents to see a certain worldview that they, you know, living in Singapore all their lives probably haven't experienced. And I did that. And then my subsequent films, short films, were very much about that. They were about trying to, in a way, explore topics or stories, humanize them so that the people immediately around me, whether it's my parents, you know, my army buddies at that time, my friends, could get a glimpse of, right? And of course, as I went on to make my feature films, then then the audience expanded. It was then about the society that I was living with and how I could help introduce different narratives and different points of view for them to appreciate things better. When I first started, it was really, the uncertainty was in whether or not this sentiment that I have, you know, this feeling that I have towards a person, a subject, was it valid? Would it be worth anything if I were to put it out there? And of course, when they found resonance in others, that gave me the confidence to try further. So to me, I suppose it is really just a sentiment, a feeling that I want to put out there. And if it finds a connection, then it has succeeded. Well, I'll never forget after Apprentice and everybody was so excited and joyful for you. And I said that it would be possible for you to make an important film that had mass appeal and you kind of rolled your eyes at me. (laughs) Do you still feel that you can't do one that would have mass appeal? I think there's often a a kind of a false binary between what is art and what is commerce. And I think it's often most magical when art meets commerce and we are able to have a good piece of work, reach more people and move more people, inspire more people. But first and foremost, it is the art, which is something that I think as filmmakers in Singapore, we often need to battle against. Maybe it's not exclusive to Singapore, obviously, but at least most immediately what we are often trying to deal with is trying to educate both the public as well as, in fact, the authorities that are funding our projects. At the heart of it is an art form. And yes, when we're able to do it well, it can transcend the typical spaces of a film festival or an art house cinema to, to something bigger. But if we are only trying to tackle it from how a film can sell and solely looking at that, to me, it's not meaningful. I think you can do both. Yes. Is that your next film? 
I, I certainly hope so. <laughs> <laughs> can you can you give us any tea on it? Can you tell us anything about the next one? I know you're going to say no, but I have to ask. Not yet. Uh, it's still about. Well, it's been delayed because of COVID. Are so you still about, writing, or how far along are you in the process? Still writing, yes, but it should have been done if not for COVID. Yeah, so we just, in fact, I could do NDP also because of COVID because I was supposed to be in Taiwan this year to film it. But then, yeah, things just got derailed a little bit. So it will be filmed in Taiwan? Primarily, uh, hopefully, if things just go as planned from now on. Yes, I think who doesn't want their work to be seen more widely? Obviously, everyone wants, right? Of course. But does but that, you're not going to sell out. Yeah, but does that mean, you know, giving in to... And, and perhaps having an inferior product for the sake of that, I think, no. And so, but I'm fortunate in that I am surrounded by, and perhaps maybe that's why a lot of filmmakers from Singapore kind of find a cocoon in the film festival world and the art house circuit, because in this circuit, there is a, a deep respect for, for, the, for the craft art. first and foremost. And eventually, you know, if one is able to cross over and be able to have their films, you know, a case in point would be like a film like Parasite, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Bong Joon-ho has been like a huge art house auteur and he was able to cross over and, and create a film like Parasite. And of course, he had many films before that that had mass appeal as well. But it takes years to be able to achieve that. And I think we're in it for the long run. Pass the Power will be right back after the break. Tell me, Junfeng, how much does Singapore shape you as a filmmaker? How independent can your voice be? It's certainly shaped a lot of it. A lot of the concerns that I have, a lot of the questions that I have on our humanity, on the human condition, those are things, I think they are quite intrinsically woven into me being Singaporean and having lived and grown up on this island. Which is why till now, my stories are based from here. But I don't think that that's necessarily a limit on how I see the world. For sure, in future, I'd love to be able to tell stories from elsewhere. But for now, I think this is my palette. This is my canvas as well. And I'll continue working from here. Do you have a film you're most proud of? Is it always your last one? I've only had two features, so it's hard to... Say okay. uh, one or the other, okay. but uh, of course, the first one is always the most precious because it was the most innocent. Yes, in it was a way. very innocent, yeah. and sweet, and thoughtful, and touching. Yeah. But the second one, I spent six years on it, so the amount of work and the tenacity that went into it, the patience that went into it, I think that I guess I'm proud of for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's talk Pink Dot, which you helped to establish. And it's about supporting inclusiveness, diversity, and the freedom to love. So how are we doing in Singapore? (laughs) Well, obviously, there is still the law in place, 377A. It's currently, you know, in the courts. So I won't comment so much on that. But I think beyond 377A, there are also many other issues that as a society, we need to address. It comes down to how young persons in school, uh, the kind of support that they may need, but they're not getting. The portrayals of LGBTQ persons in the mainstream media is still very far from ideal. In fact, negative, like so far, you know, any positive portrayal is not allowed. 
So in many ways, we are not seen as human, right? In the eyes of many in Singapore. And therefore, when, when we ask that society evolves, society will not evolve if they are not given an accurate portrayal of who we are. So right now, of course, with, you know, with Netflix, with all the streaming platforms, with YouTube, yes, there are other avenues of having access to, to stories, but we are leaving out an entire generation, an older generation that's still watching mainstream TV that deserve actually to understand people better. And I think that's where we are failing them. And in schools, I, I was saying earlier, sexuality education and how, you know, we are still very one-sided and, and not giving LGBTQ youth the space to be themselves. And in fact, the right to ask questions about themselves and have a scientific way, a secular scientific way of understanding who they are. These are all spaces that need to be worked on for real inclusivity. Right now, yes, you know, the law is in the way, but we hope that in time to come, when the law goes, that all these other areas can be addressed. In fact, before the law goes, we should be addressing these issues already. Well, I'm proud of you for making it something that you're passionate about, that you talk about, that you're very vocal about, because as long as we keep it under the rug, it won't change. Because I think for many people, it's, it's just an issue, right? For me, it is an identity. It is who I am, right? And so when we are asked to, to speak of it as though it is a, some kind of topic, it is laughable actually because it is not a topic. You know, For us, it is who we are. It is something that we are born to be. And then with all these odds stacked against us, and that's where I guess you know passing on the power is important, right? For those of us who have perhaps platforms that are available to us to be able to speak, to be able to tell the stories, we do that, right? At Pink Dot, especially in the last two years, because we can't gather at Hong Lim Park, the live stream that we do is about actually empowering and telling even more stories and allowing these narratives to reach as far as possible. Of course, because we have our limits, because it's only limited to online media. Before the pandemic, we had dinner and you brought your dog, Peanut. <laughs> <laughs> and we're both mad about our dogs. Both of our dogs have Instagram accounts. <laughs> so can you tell us about Peanut? I know he's from Japan. Oh, she. Oh, sorry, uh, she. She was from Japan and my partner was living there. When he moved back, uh, we moved her back as well. She had to come back in cargo, unfortunately. She's a little black Shiba Inu. Mm. I think Shiba Inus have suddenly become really popular lately. But when we first brought her back, she was like... In fact, when we first saw her, we thought she was like a little German Shepherd because she wasn't the prettiest Shiba, Shiba Inu when we saw her. But she's grown and she's blossomed. <laughs> she's beautiful. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, we love her to bits. I was going to say, you guys uh, love her so much. So, yeah, she is... Um, but as with uh, many Shiba Inus, she's just really stubborn and she has an attitude. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a hunting dog, right? Yes. But they're known to be a bit more like cats. So they, they allow you to touch them on their terms. They don't come up to you. Well, they come up to you only when they want to. Unlike my dog, who is just a <laughs> yes, complete cuddler. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. It's not the easiest first dog, I must say. Yeah. <laughs> and I know you're learning Japanese. You adore the food and the country. What is the catalyst? Um, my partner was based in Tokyo and we really loved Tokyo. And ever since he moved back, he moved back because 
of me because of his parents. But we, we miss being in Tokyo. So we decided to enroll in Japanese class about three years ago. We stuck to it for two years and then it got a little too difficult. <laughs> so, got it. So the last year it's yeah, been so, a little off course. Yeah, so we, we've kind of stopped for a few months now. It's difficult because for to pick up a language and not be able to use it. I'm sure if we were in Japan, if we were living in Japan, we would be fluent by now. But just here, you know, and only speaking for two hours every week is just very difficult. Yeah, That's so true. When I lived in New York, up until I moved here, I took a lot of Mandarin lessons. Uh But because in both places, I was surrounded mostly by people speaking English. Yeah. It was very difficult for me to improve it. Although when I'm in China for any amount of time, it just naturally gets better because you're forced. Yeah, so for sure. yeah, being in the native country is important. Yeah. Hindsight's 2020. What do you wish you'd known when you started your career? Well, I wish I'd known it would take so long to make a film <laughs> each time. I mean, I, I have friends who would have scripts in their drawers and, you know, waiting to be made, ideas and whatnot. But for me, I, I always kind of took every project as it comes. So yeah, I do have ideas, but I I don't have them, you know, already written and ready to be made. So that's why it takes longer for me. Sandcastle, my first film took three years, you know, Apprentice took six years. Oh my gosh. I'm really hoping it's so we're gonna a, have nine years? An exponential oh, <laughs> increase. No, I think it's if not for COVID, we hopefully would have been making it already. But but yeah, let's hope it doesn't get delayed any further. What well, yeah. did you know as soon as Apprentice closed what your next one was gonna be? Was there an epiphany moment or you just... Yes, I, I knew I, I wanted to make this next film already. i spoken to my producer, Raymond, about it. And we were exploring ideas already then. But the nature of our work is that while the feature films... Actually, part of the reason why the feature films take such a long time is because we also need to feed ourselves yeah. uh, in You between. have to make the commercials. We make you... commercials, we do NDP, we do all these projects that actually take up time. And each time we do it, the film project runs parallel when we still need to prioritize on the feature film. So quite often it's about balancing the two schedules so that we can find that balance. And for me now, I'm, I'm still finding that balance. For the ones listening out there, is there one skill you'd recommend to accelerate a career? You mean to be a filmmaker? Yes. Well, I think to be a filmmaker, actually to create anything, to be observant is something that's very important. Sometimes I was quite an observant person. So looking out for reactions and and how people respond to things, how people live, the color of something, the sound of the train, the way a breeze feels, you know, on your skin. Wow, it sounds like you're living in the moment and being attentive, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Because those are things that, you know, to recreate on screen are things that, obviously very, very helpful to understand and to be able to represent. And I'm sure as an actor too, those are things that you need to understand, yeah, to observe. Is there a question you wish I'd asked? The Singapore International Film Festival, which is very dear to my heart. I'm currently the chair of the festival. And it's really just for me, a space for exploration, for cinema. And yeah, we want to keep it going. How can the listeners learn more? Come to the festival. When is the festival? We haven't announced the dates yet, but it will be in late November mm-hmm. till early December. And it will be physical or online or both? This time around, physical. We will stand with the cinemas for whenever they're open. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. A trend you'd like to end? It's a double-edged sword, obviously. The thing about social media being a lot about 
the self and quite often vanity. <laughs> I mean, to me, those are very, I can't say I'm not guilty of it too, but my fear is that it, it is breeding perhaps unhealthy visions of ourselves and that does affect people who follow us. So I think those are things that, you know, I wish with time that there will be some adjustments to, to understand what is right and what is appropriate. It's interesting, but I just want to add, I'm thinking of teaching this course. And one of the things I want to talk about is how people gauge their success compared to others. And someone wrote me and he said that um, my book was an eight out of 10. So I wrote him back and said, why was it an eight, not a 10? And he said, because your life is so perfect that I can't give you a 10 on your book because then it would be too perfect. And of course my life's not perfect, but to him and maybe from my social media feed, he thinks it is. So he's judging his life compared to what he thinks mine is, but my life is nothing like that. And that's where we are now is that everybody's comparing and actually that success is completely external factors. It's not our success means to us. It's what everybody else tells us success means. Yeah, and we create our lives for social media. And even when we choose to be vulnerable, we also choose the vulnerable moments. We curate even those moments to be out there, which is why it's important, I think, to still look at stories and films and, you know, sometimes even just read a book, right? That I'm all about reading books. Definitely. That actually shows you deeper, takes you further, and just allows you to understand life a little bit deeper. What are you reading right now? I'm reading something that, that I may adapt into a film. So I, 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 <laughs> I just I finished Midnight Library is. and it's excellent. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's super, super good. It, it explores all the lives that this person didn't take in life, all the paths she right. didn't take. Right. And when you think about that, it's fascinating. Your favorite comfort food? I'd say Korean food because it's my childhood food. My mom used to work at Singapore's very first Korean restaurant. It was called Korean Restaurant Private Limited. <laughs> and, Very original. Uh, yes. And back then, this was before Korean food was even a thing. I remember when I was in school, telling my friends about Korean food. And then they'll be like, oh, is it like Japanese food? Like no one knew what Korean food was like. This was like in the 90s. And so now it's really nice to be able to find actually good Korean food around everywhere. So that's what I go to. Are you watching anything? Yes, I'm watching actually quite a, a few films now, now that the cinemas are open again, I actually really, really enjoy going back to the theatre. I just saw a film called Drive My Car, which is an adaptation of a Murakami a short story. And uh, I just also went to see Dune, mm. which is beautifully shot. Yeah, just going back to the cinema and, and, and not seeing things on small screen at home anymore. MBS, Gardens by the Bay, Jewel or Botanic Gardens? Botanic gardens for sure. Yeah, it's where I walk my dog sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> if you could be a superhero, what power would you have? To read minds. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I think Professor X power. Favorite drink and with whom you share it? Favorite drink. Right now, I'm I'm a little addicted to Mr. Coconut. I don't know if you've tried it. No. <laughs> it's uh, it's like a coconut slushy, but they add something to it that just makes it irresistible. Yeah, zero percent sugar because it's already kind of naturally sweetened. Naturally, I hope. Yeah, but right. it's don't ask. Yeah, don't ask. <laughs> but it's just yeah, and with Rashida, my partner. Yeah. Well, before we close, I also want to add earlier in the podcast, Jun Fong said, and you wore that beautiful gown to Apprentice in Cannes. That beautiful gown I have now donated to the Asian Civilizations Museum. 
It is on display until the middle of December in the SG Fashion Now exhibition. So everyone listening, please go and see it. It was made by Ong Shong Magang, and I wore it on the red carpet in Cannes for Jun Fong's movie, The Apprentice, and it's in the museum for you to see. I feel like Jun Fong's passion and purpose in telling stories leaves us all incredibly inspired to live a better life and to write our own story well. Do you have any final words to pass on the power? In recent times, you know, I think a lot of people tend to want to speak over one another. And for me, I, I feel like taking the time to listen tends to be a better use of my time. And I think sometimes in listening, appreciating, empathizing, understanding, it allows us to then decide where we want to dedicate our time and our lives even what are the things that matter more? And yeah, I think it's great that you have listeners who care for this. And the very fact that you're listening to a podcast, I suppose, suggests that you care for listening. And yeah, I hope that you would dedicate your time to, to something meaningful and purposeful. Well, most who are listening are also trying to learn. So mm-hmm. I think that's important. And it's interesting that Unshuan, the actress, when she was on the podcast, she said something so similar as, I wish people would listen. Mm-hmm. And because we're all so busy making noise and talking that sometimes we miss the real stories. Thank you for being here and sharing. I love seeing you and hearing your thoughts. Thanks, Paige. Happy being here. Thank you for listening. Please write to me on Instagram with your top takeaway from today. Since I'm still new at this, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast or click the follow button on Spotify. Share my podcast on your Instagram stories and please tag me at I am Paige Parker. Always know I'm eager to hear from you on guest ideas and questions for upcoming guests. If you're new to the show, be sure to listen to the previous episodes to hear from more thought leaders. Again, thank you for listening and come back next week for another episode of Pass the Power with me, Paige Parker. Together, We got this.